0: Just before we kind of leave the Biden campaign here, let's talk about what are the kind of general expectations for the Biden presidency, what's gonna be said about Biden versus what we know is actually going to happen with Biden. I
1: think it's possible that the Biden administration will do some small good things. I think that's also going to depend on how much we, we pressure them to do good things. We can we can shoot for the moon and, and hopefully get a few crumbs here and there. I see the student debt thing drop from fifty thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars in
0: just a couple of days. No,
2: um, this is news to me, yeah. Mike. Don't tell me. Sorry to break it
0: to oh! you. But, it went and, from you know, fifty thousand to ten thousand. Yeah, and okay. you know
1: he's not even in office yet, so sorry about <laughs> that. Sorry about that. But I do think we can put pressure on him and, and maybe get it back up to fifty thousand if we let them know that that's unacceptable. If we actually organize and protest in the streets at a at a certain level like I think we can push them to do little things like that $50,000 is you know significant but it's obviously not total debt relief so I think it's possible to to get it back up to a number like that
2: I, I was about um, to say I think you're right because when you factor in multiple years of college plus interest even $50,000 does not really do it for a lot of people so the fact that he exactly. won't commit to that ugh. yeah oh man
1: you know, these are very incremental changes that are going to happen, if anything. Obviously, if we've seen the floating of of Susan Rice and Michelle Flournoy as defense secretary, we we pretty much have a good idea of what's going to happen
0: yeah.
1: there. His, his Pentagon transition team, his uh, DOD agency review team is basically just uh, everybody from all of the biggest organizations funded by the defense contractor industry and all that stuff. So that seems like a, a pretty obvious uh, sign of what's to come as far as foreign policy. And to me, honestly, that is like the thing we should be screaming about the most. Obviously, like we we should not let this happen the way we know it's going to happen. That's my biggest concern by far. Nobody seems to be talking about this this foreign policy team that they're putting together.
0: These people are, I think, likely to be a lot more competent in that, in exactly. that area than the Republicans were. But I mean, if we're talking about a potential Trump coup, in terms of foreign policy, maybe that would be for the best to have him attempt a coup. And uh, the country just goes down in some like late Soviet era style collapse. Um, The late era (laughs) Soviet Union, also known for its uh, gerontocracy.
2: Yes, um, I have. I, I didn't hear that word until like six months ago, and then I found out that it was something people were saying like forty years ago.
0: Yes, when you are ruled by people like <laughs> Diane D- Feinstein, and you just Google that word, just now.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah Diane Feinstein and, and Jerry Nadler literally shitting his pants on camera. Oh my um, god! How did that <laughs> not? Like how was that happened.
2: not like uh, the, the the amount of? It's that, that that's what sucks is that if it was just any. like if someone had like shit themselves on a security camera at a gas station it would have gone online and that person would have been embarrassed for all eternity and jerry nadler did it and only really i found like like particularly like progressive and leftist and maybe like right wing i guess maybe the right wingers picked it up too but like it it wasn't it wasn't a big story it wasn't like you and i know about it but my mom definitely doesn't know that jerry nadler shit himself on camera and like These liberals
0: on MSNBC, they don't even talk about these Democrats shit in their pants, fucking liberal media. No, there was a lot of meme potential there that went unfulfilled and you really hate to see it. There's just so, there's been, there's a problem with the Trump administration. It's just too much, like too much of this stuff to like address in its own way. That could have been like a whole week's worth of memes. But, you know, the next day is just Trump, his his dumbass is just going to do something else. It's going to distract everyone. And we can't even enjoy like the just insanity of it all. It's just it moves too fast. Mm -hmm.
2: Jerry Nadler's bowels are moving too fast.
0: Well, (laughs) yeah, obviously. Um,
2: can, can I ju- can I just real quick my hopes and and, uh, and expectations for the yeah, Biden campaign? Yeah. What Mike brought up just now about the lowering of ambitions with canceling student debt really puts a huge dent in what my hopes are, even let alone my expectations. Because one of the major hopes that I have, I, I, I was I, I was always for the notion of going after people in the Trump administration and in the cases and the people I had on that list earlier were people like Betsy DeVos and Louis DeJoy, the assholes I like to call them. Betsy DeVos just out of hand denied thousands upon thousands of people who should have uh, had their student debt canceled because the the colleges that they had attended were like fly by night bullshit operations that like barely gave them an education. And Louis DeJoy mm. has done all this shit that everyone knows he's been doing since what is it, April, May that he's been that he's been in office there. If you have people like this who can head public institutions and can just wreck them for private interests, because Betsy DeVos, is, as everyone knows, is it in, has interests in education from pre-K all the way to college, even has money in lenders in and people who yeah. service student loans and stuff like that. And Louis DeJoy is an executive from the world of logistics that competes directly with the post office. So if you can go yep. from there into government and wreck it, people have already been doing that, right? We already had people yeah. who, who have been running the EPA and other organizations who, who are from the world of oil and stuff like that. But there is a public interest and it is represented by the yep. government and it needs to be protected.
0: It is kind of nice to see, in a way, Comrade Trump destabilizing the United States.
1: You know, Joe Biden, I, I'm pretty sure he likes William Barr. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure. Probably. He's oh like God, friends. I mean,
0: they're all friends. It's a, it's they're a, all friends. It's a well, big club and you ain't in it. Joe Biden is like chummy with like most of the people in Washington. But... You know, I think that there would be people who would say that it's not even worth it to be involved in this kind of electoralism and in politics, which we know are corrupt anyway. But I think it's it's useful to build the strength of the left. And I think these are worthy demands that some of these people can be held accountable. And it's it's, it's good to fight for things that we want. Even if we were 100% sure that we, were, that we wouldn't get him with Biden, it's, that's how you build the strength of the left, is for fighting through these things and building organization.
2: It's also kind of like a put up or shut up thing because the, the mainstream dens and libs are the ones who talk up Donald Trump's fascistic tendencies even more than the far left, like us. They're the ones, they're the ones who, who really are running around with their hair on fire about how terrible he is. If that is the case, let's be real about what the consequences for this kind of behavior should be.
0: All right, let's kind of... uh, Sorry,
2: I had my my big old rant. You want to go to the the good old days then?
0: (laughs) I always just cut out everything you say anyway, so...
2: Okay, excellent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, well, like, um, it's been kind of a freewheeling conversation, but there has been some good stuff. So let's talk about, while we've got you here, Mike... The good old days, or at least the better days, working for the Bernie campaign. How did you get started working for Bernie in 2020? Were you working for him in 2016? No, no. Uh, Actually, 2016, Bernie's campaign,
1: I volunteered, and it was really the first political action I had ever done, to be honest. Just knocked some doors and had a good time, met a lot of people. But then immediately after he lost the primary, I was in Philadelphia for the convention. I had witnessed some low-level corruption with with the delegate caucuses and stuff like that in Orange County. I was pretty like I kind of just dove right into how big of a facade the Democratic Party was immediately, and so. But I did take it upon myself to work for the Democratic Party to certain degrees, state and local campaigns, about twenty of them over the next three and a half years, and uh, just did everything I could in that time. And then apparently it was enough to get hired to the campaign in a decent, in a decent role. I had ran some other field operations for governor of Nevada and the state assembly, stuff like that. So I kind of just did what it, what it took to actually get in there in a good amount of time. And also had a lot of references too. I actually volunteered in 2020 for like probably three or four months, pretty much full time before I actually got hired. But it eventually happened and I was very grateful for that position. Everybody that I met, including you, it was a great time. And yeah. Honestly, it was my it was my greatest experience ever in electoral politics just because everybody was so passionate about what they were doing. And I didn't have to ask anybody to work hard. I didn't have to like check up on anybody. Like everybody was a hundred percent in.
0: There were a lot of people who got hired for Nevada in particular. That was one of the good things about the Bernie campaign, is I know a lot of people. It's like it, they didn't necessarily have a lot of like high profile experiences working in politics or a lot of time they didn't have much experience in politics at all. They'd organized for other things. But mm-hmm. Bernie campaign was good about bringing people in who just were down for the cause and kind of demonstrated that they were going to work hard for the campaign and continue to to be engaged in the fight from here on out, whatever form that takes.
1: Yeah, I was, I was certainly a little bit concern going into it that I wasn't really sure how establishment friendly the whole campaign would be. So I I honestly wasn't sure um, if I would have to tone down my message, tone down my approach. I wasn't sure what kind of people were going to be directly above me. But when I got there, I was I was very pleasantly surprised learning that during the hiring process, we were definitely looking for people that were passionate Bernie supporters as opposed to politically experienced democrats right like we actually mm. i was able to use discretion on on who i hired and if it was somebody that was like looking at joining the Buttigieg campaign or the warren campaign or the klobuchar campaign like i was allowed to you know turn them down based on on those things specifically because it is a very As you different should. yeah yeah, exactly. It's a very different <laughs> dynamic when you get people like that in there, just trying to help out the Democratic Party, as opposed to people who actually understand what Bernie's message is and what he was trying to do. So it was very nice.
0: And people just like padding their resume and being a free agent if they're willing to work for literally any candidate. It's like, how good are they going to be yeah. at the door for Bernie if it's that? Exactly. If that's, if that's the depth of their kind of thinking on these things. But yeah, it was it was a great time in Nevada. And we did really well in Nevada. I, I think part of it was, you know, there was a lot of grassroots enthusiasm for Bernie in the state. And this was a state that had been, I know a lot of people were just devastated in 2008 during the Great Recession and a lot of Latino families and other families who lost their homes. And so I think there was a real appetite for um, that kind of message. And uh, I think so for that kind of campaign.
1: Nevada specifically, and this is, this is what I try to explain to people after things started to go downhill, but Nevada was the only state that Bernie overperformed in. It was a caucus, so that makes a big difference. But in general, that was the biggest paid canvas program of any presidential campaign ever. And it showed, in my opinion, that was why we won by such big margins. And that's how we could have continued to win in big margins. and. Unfortunately, they decided to basically pull the plug on paid canvassing as soon as Nevada was over.
0: They pulled the plug on a lot of things. I know there were a lot of organizers who were sounding the alarm about this, about how we needed more investments in field. And um, the campaign was in California for a long ass time. And it shows they really built something there. And they built something, I think, in New Hampshire and in Iowa. And some yeah. of these later states, I think it was just a strategic failure, unfortunately. Like they thought they could win these first states and then do well on Super Tuesday, and it would all be downhill from there. I think what they didn't realize was that, in terms of the media narrative, like the media was never going to give Bernie the benefit of the doubt or never let him win these kind of media cycles. In the way that they would let Joe Biden win them, or like in the way that like Trump won them in 2016 when he ran this kind of outsider campaign, it was like the media was never going to give Bernie credit for anything. One
2: really single example of that that I'm sure you guys were aware of, but I just want to let our audience know was when in in, tw- in, in 2016 Bernie was uh, giving a speech to thousands of people because he had just won a primary. And instead, the major news networks kept their cameras and attention on an empty podium for Trump.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's just a dynamic you've you've just seen throughout. And Bernie made like good use of those like post victory speeches. I remember back in 2016, one of my favorite moments of the campaign was after he won New Hampshire. It was the first primary we won. So it was like, there's a lot of excitement. And because we were beginning to realize that, okay yeah this thing could be real and but he used that speech to do like an impromptu fundraiser he told everyone to go to berniesanders.com and donate to his campaign and literally so many people donated in that moment that they crashed act blue the system went down because it was just overloaded from people donating to the campaign
2: I, I just think we remember back then hearing about his campaign and knowing very little about him and th- and look and thinking of him as him as well as a couple of other political figures that that I thought of as the guys who were really good and I'd like to see run, but you know, that's just never gonna happen, right? I remember like when I was younger, I used to like Russ Feingold a lot. He was one of the guys who who tended to be writer than most on a lot of issues and went against the grain. And Bernie Sanders was a similar figure in my mind. And when I saw how easy it was to donate, I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll go to act Blue and donate or whatever. And then I remember like a week later was the first big story of how huge his haul was and the like I'd never even just reading that headline and seeing that I'd never just an immediate like surge of of a feeling of hope like I just saw this headline thought of my donation and thought like wow people did what I did in huge numbers, right? People donated 20, 30 bucks in huge numbers because they know the same thing and think the same thing. And there are tons of people just like me who know the Democratic Party is full of shit and are just begging for something else. And that was like the first inkling of, of, of a feeling about this. Yeah, and like everything I feel politically now, I owe a great deal of it to just that sequence yeah. of things.
0: Yeah, it was people like a winner and that really helps the campaign when you just have the uh, exhilaration of those kind of victories and it's again the media was just determined to step all over it and I remember as soon as we won Nevada that was when it came out it so Bernie's best friends with Fidel Castro and all this well, other stuff. Well, so Joe Biden, apparently,
2: right? So what's the difference? Is he? Just according to what Republicans, like the thing, that's what they kept on saying about Bernie, right? Oh, the Republicans will call him a socialist. They'll call him a socialist. They call anybody a socialist anyway. That was a main yeah. thing with Obama back in 2008, too. This is not a new talking point. They throw it out every time.
0: Yeah, except that Bernie starts winning and they're throwing it out on MSNBC, too and they've got all the libs repeating this stuff but okay mike so you joined the bernie campaign in 2020 yeah it was so we did well in nevada i ended up going to california after that for super tuesday and we we did really well in california which was great but we just narrowly lost texas which i think is one of those states we could have won which is more ground game what did you get up to after nevada
1: After Nevada, I went back to California and I volunteered in East L.A. and out in the high desert. And, uh, you know, I was just sitting there and I realized because that's when everything went down where we realized we were understaffed in the next batch of states like Texas, like South Carolina, like Florida, Michigan. All these places didn't have even a fraction of what we had in Nevada or Iowa or New Hampshire. So the field organizers got together and tried to send a letter to Fez at the top of the campaign and basically got ignored. So I took it upon myself to start raising money to sponsor volunteers. So I just started reaching out to people, basically who I knew had given money to the campaign, maybe people that had maxed out and asked them if they wanted to help sponsor some volunteers. And I paid for a trip to Detroit for a couple of people. I went there for a few days and uh, did some really good work. There was a lot of really incredible volunteers in Detroit. I got to go to 7 and 8 Mile Road and just kind of post up outside of polling locations. And honestly, I would flip people from Biden to Bernie as they were walking into their polling location, which was an incredible feeling. It was like it only took 45 seconds sometimes. and they People just, are so gettable yeah because the thing was that they would forget how they felt about bernie just from being bombarded with so much msnbc style coverage right and once you help them remember that especially i would just let them know i came all the way from california i really believe in bernie i would remind them of a couple of things that joe biden was responsible for and they would just kind of click for some of them probably like one or two out of every five so that was was great but biden ended up winning every single county in michigan somehow and uh, so that kind of hurt but then you know I ended up flying a bunch of people to Chicago for a week and we knocked some doors in Chicago and that's when COVID hit and we kind of had to get a little more creative with the outreach
2: that that detail of what you just said of telling people I came out here from California yeah I, I wonder how much of an effect that had on people I like to think it really did have an effect on people because there are a lot of people who aren't particularly politically inclined who if they see that a certain candidate has the kind of support that they agree with their ideas but they're not willing to go to go do a lot of lengths for them mm-hmm. but they just see that there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of j- just deeply rooted enthusiasm for them already among uh, among politically inclined people they're like, well, maybe this guy does have a shot because he's got people like this guy in front of me who came out from fucking California to come talk to me in Michigan about, yeah. the, about the, I, was, I, don't, I don't know what the what the academic research is on that, but I, I, I'd like to think it has an effect.
1: Well, I'll tell you firsthand, it was, it was a very effective approach. It wasn't the line I started off with, but as they were walking in, they would typically have their head down if they didn't want to hear me out or something. You know, a lot of these people have their mind made up. They don't really want to hear from somebody as they're walking in. But I would pitch like a 30 second pitch and basically when I got to that California line I would see a lot of heads perk up and a lot of people make eye contact with me and like kind of give me like a like a really like are you for real like you came all the way out here and I would be like yeah and then I would give them one more 20 second pitch more about like Bernie's honesty and, his, and how genuine he is and how I just really believed he would do stuff for the working class. And that was that was definitely the part that sealed it a lot of the time. And they would come back out and they would let me know that they took my advice or they switched their vote. I definitely think the, the California line had a had a huge impact on them
0: for sure. You, I don't, I never really mastered the street canvassing thing. I don't think as much as you did. That's uh...
1: yeah. I basically learned. I've been canvassing. I started off as a canvasser for a solar company, and that was like not easy, right? Like I'm not a good bullshitter, right? Like I can't really lie to people. But when I switched over to politics and and specifically for Bernie Sanders, it was just the easiest thing in the world for me because I had already been through the toughest canvassing situations and circumstances from being in Staten Island, on the In the front yard of some super rich old mean, mean motherfuckers, right? Like they're screaming at you to get off yeah. their property. They don't want you there. Yeah. Then,
2: Staten Island is yeah. Italians in the KKK. Is yeah, Island.
0: exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> it I should really be ringer. part of New Jersey.
1: I did New Jersey too. Yeah, I did a little bit of New Jersey. <laughs> So, oh, wait, I'm
2: sorry, sorry, wait. But before you continue, you say canvassing, were, were you selling solar panels? Were you like advocating for solar panel legislation of some kind? But what no, was I was deal?
1: actually like selling solar panels. Yeah. Ah, okay. Which is a tough Oof. pitch I'm trying to get them to make a $20,000 purchase on the spot, right? Like, it's not easy. It's not easy work. So, fast forward to Detroit five years later, and just like, Understanding that the best thing you can do is to try and get a a genuine connection with somebody in that moment because it's all about trust, right? It's about common ground, it's about trust. And it's very tough to gain trust within a one minute pitch. So you learn that it has a lot to do with body language, it has a lot to do with eye contact. And you could just feel some of the connections being made in that moment just by approaching them in a genuine, honest way, which is tough to do, obviously, when you're street canvassing, because people are like, they think you're trying to sell them something immediately. But if you can let them know that you're not, and that you actually have their interest in mind, then uh, it can go a long way in a very short amount of time.
0: So you were in Detroit, and then uh, we were in Chicago together for a little while working on the campaign there. Things that started... Start to go downhill a little bit before then, and unfortunately, as soon as COVID hit, things just got worse. But what was um, what was your take on some of the faults of the campaign, and, and particularly around this time when they started to become maybe more apparent?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were in Chicago, that was basically the last chance that we had to, to, to make up the ground that we had lost after Super Tuesday, and. When COVID hit, obviously that made it really tough. Bernie's ground game was pretty much the only thing keeping him in the race. But, you know, the big debacle with the field organizers basically begging for more funding in the field, learning that Texas only had, from what I heard, this might not be fully accurate, but from what I heard, Texas had one regional field director and zero field organizers. Or at least that was the case just a week or two before texas's primary so places like florida and and illinois and michigan which should have had 70 80 90 staffers ended up having a dozen or two dozen at the most after we won nevada i had a conversation with somebody that was above me and and he made it sound like that the people at the top of the campaign We're going to just try and ride out the momentum from those first couple states, which at the time sounded insane to me. And and it it ended up being an insane strategy, obviously, because we know how the media operates. And we know about how the establishment can move very quickly.
2: You got to fight their narrative.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it seemed like the just about the worst idea you could possibly have when we're basically hitting our stride. I don't know if anybody really got a reason. Pretty much all we found out about it was. I guess the best way to put it is that these were decisions made by people who we probably should have known better about maybe trusting fully. They had worked with a lot of establishment politicians in the past. And and this isn't everybody at the top, but it's a couple key people at the top. And I think some of them were kind of just looking forward to their next position, their next job more than they were about doing everything they could to win this win this primary for Bernie. I don't know if people up there just know that it's not going to happen for somebody like Bernie, but you know, this was at a time where we had more hope than ever. It was at a time where he Hmm. was he had a ton of momentum. And all they had to do was just continue that ground game in a significant way, not even at a hundred percent from where it was, but in a significant way. And we could have done a lot better on Super Tuesday. But at the same time, we know they gave Joe Biden a ton of free press in the days leading up to it. We know about the Clyburn endorsement. We know about Pete and Klobuchar dropping out. At Obama's behest.
2: Yeah, he won one state, that one state, and they called it over. It it was insane how done they made it seem after he won South Carolina, when there was still everything to play for. They were
0: just, I think they were waiting for their chance to do that. There were several states on Super Tuesday that be lost by tiny margins. I mean, Maine, I think Minnesota, Massachusetts, we could have taken away taken that away from Warren with better organizing. And that's that's another piece of this whole thing. I think there were probably people that thought, well, she can help divide that progressive vote.
1: I think I think that's a big reason why there was twenty plus candidates in the first place. I think they were trying to water down Bernie's appeal in certain key states with Beto in Texas and Klobuchar, Minnesota, Pete in Indiana. I think I think the whole plan here was to give these people as big of a base as they possibly can gain through media exposure, move over to the establishment candidate, which probably was Biden the entire time. It seems like
0: who knows, I guess, they maybe they suspected that he would do well in South Carolina. I think it's something they kept in their back pocket all along, for sure. And it really does seem like they just they threw everything at the wall. You know, down to having Mayor Pete, our first openly LGBTQ CIA candidate. Um, And everything that went down in Iowa, I think that's the lesson we should learn from this, is that I I think the strategy they had was, well, it's a sound strategy for Trump in 2016. It could have been a sound strategy for most candidates, but Bernie is not most candidates. Like, he is a socialist. and. People wanted him out if for nothing else. then I think to try to minimize the narrative that he was building. With for sure. Trump.
1: For sure. The CEOs made it very clear as well. Wall Street and, and the corporate class made it very clear that they would they would vote for Trump uh, way before Bernie Sanders. Right. And obviously that that has a huge impact on the way that the Democratic establishment goes about running that primary as well.
0: Yeah, there were a lot of people that made it clear it was you had this dipshit on MSNBC who basically like said it out loud at one point. It was one of these uh, dickheads on Morning Joe, kind of making it clear that that's where the thinking would be of a lot of these kinds of people if it did come mm-hmm. down to, if it came down to Bernie versus Trump, which I think would have been a nightmare scenario basically for the ruling class, because then you're dealing <laughs> yeah. with, two, with two people that they really don't prefer either of them. I mean, they can live with Trump, but yeah, they, you know,
2: that's the thing. Yeah, we, we were just talking about how the capitalist structure doesn't like the aesthetics of fascism, but is happy to work within it because right. it doesn't structurally affect the status quo. It doesn't affect
0: their status quo, you know.
2: And exactly. uh, so they, they, they don't like Trump because he puts a more honest, meaner face on what the business community, especially in the United States, is about. We have a mo- we have a, a vicious really overtly cruel and audacious business class here that even other western capitalist countries just can't compete with they don't like some they don't like a candidate like trump who lays that bare but in a pinch if if you put him against bernie sanders as opposed to joe biden and joe biden is the kind of candidate who doesn't force them to make that uncomfortable choice
0: yeah i think it's I think that's all true. It's the ruling class here is it's like in like what other major industrialized country do you have a ruling power that outright denies climate change? But that's the horse they'll back. Like if it comes down to it and it's the horse they have back. The ruling class will move back and forth between either party, depending on what's best for them at any given moment. You know, in the 90s, that was Clinton because arguably he did more damage than the Republicans we were able yeah. to do at the time because he passed NAFTA. And he did a lot of these things that politically were hard for the right to do. But listen, yeah, I mean,
2: liberal, you got to read that book, Thomas Frank, read, listen, liberal. And in particular, for what you're just talking about, John, the chapter called It Takes a Liberal. It's always the liberal presidents. It's the, the third way Democrats that allowed all of the worst inclinations of the right wing that they weren't able to pass under reagan they were able to do it under democrats who triangulated in their favor
0: yep yeah plus he's for certain sectors of the ruling class it was i mean clinton wasn't that gay friendly really he was socially conservative in a lot of ways but don't i mean, I mean yeah, neither, neither don't. was biden no these people have horrible records on a lot of these things but the ruling class—they—if it becomes helpful for them to put kind of a socially liberal like sheen on these things from time to time—and they'll get behind that if they determine it to be in their interest. Intersectional imperialism, rainbow capitalism—it's. It's, uh, Have you
2: seen that meme? Will you give us? <laughs> will, will you give us uh, free healthcare, or like, will you stop bombing us in the case of like Middle Eastern countries, right? And it's like Republicans, no, and then democrats know with like rainbow flag emoji and <laughs>
0: hashtag blm yeah <laughs>
2: yeah yeah that, that that sums it up so perfectly
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so it was um and without necessarily disparaging people who worked higher up on the camp i mean you know i think there were some people whose heart was in the right place oh yeah to be
1: to be clear the people directly above me were were all incredible they were passionate bernie supporters and i had no doubts about any of them but you know, the people one step above or maybe two steps above them is where things get a little a little mm-hmm. debatable.
0: Yeah. I think you do have a lot of these people whose heart, in some ways, is genuinely in the right place. But, you know, your heart can be in the right place. But, you know, it helps to have kind of a, a reality-based, Marxist-based analysis of things to to be able to... Actually, realize how things are going to play out. There was a lot of talk on the ground, just real quick about the the treatment of the grassroots organizing
1: outside of the actual campaign and how they were treated by the campaign. I I heard all about it, especially in California. But you know they they very much neglected a lot of the things that made the 2016 campaign so great, and and sometimes almost disallowed it. There, there's a couple people. One in particular, one that went around the country chalking Bernie's name in, in public places. And and he he gained himself a very, very strong following just from chalking Bernie's name. There was times where the campaign wouldn't let him do that at certain events. There was no honk and wave type events. They were they were essentially banning certain grassroots organizers as well from from working on the campaign. Hmm. They were very in and, and I don't know why, and I don't know whose decision this was, but Um, they definitely decided to not pump up or support the grassroots. It
0: was a very unique, like you say, grassroots uh, energy in 2016. And, uh, you know, in some ways in 2020, I think maybe they overthought some things. And um, Yeah, because, you know, right now the Democratic Party, especially with this, the losing seats
1: in the House, a lot of people are spinning this narrative like it's a bad look for the party to be tied to the activist community.
2: Can you name even one particular policy that outside of the progressive wing that mainstream Dems gunning for like they, they I, I'd be hard pressed to articulate one thing there's just no positive politics and again not positive in like this kind of ethical way but in terms sense of proposing something like here this is what i want to do they don't want the green new deal joe biden doesn't want it john ossoff i just saw recently doesn't want the green new deal what the yeah. what, what yeah. use are yeah. you if you're like just well, a few years older than me if you're a young man and you don't want the fucking green new deal i expect that almost from people who are almost done with this fucking movie in their 70s you know what i mean but if you're 30 right. something Okay, early 30s, I think John Ossoff is right. Maybe a little over 35. I don't know. But he he looks very young and acts it. Uh, If you're at that age and you're not for the Green New Deal, there is something seriously wrong with you.
0: The adrenochrome really helps, I think, in his case. But no, I think the campaign just became overly cautious in some ways and maybe poll driven in some ways, which is the way the Democrats generally are. Half the time, they don't even read these polls correctly, I don't think, or they just um, I mean... I mean, we should say some people are poll driven and, you know, you got a fair amount of people who just are cynical. Yeah.
1: The Democratic Party knows that its constituents want younger politicians. Right. But, you know, this is why they they breed candidates like Buttigieg. Right. Who who appeal yeah. aesthetically, but not at all ideologically.
2: You know how like you might have those army men toys that are like injection mold plastic, and it's meant to be exactly the same shape, but one of them is just a little warped and a little different than the other. Like, that's Ossoff and Buttigieg right there. They're like two guys from the same fucking plastic injection mold.
0: Joaquin Castro, too, is someone I haven't really been impressed by. They've been trying to push him for a while and never really caught on. But
2: I, I just saw a couple of days ago an article about how we are already at a point now where we have to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. It's not just a question of lowering what we put into it anymore. We're already at that point where if we want to get out of this, we have to get the pail and bucket out the water that's coming into the ship. It's not enough (laughs) to plug the fucking hole anymore. We're already there now. So even that 2030 deadline that people have been talking about for so long that the UN said however many years ago, two or three years ago, that we had until 2030 to get this shit under wraps, that's already not enough anymore. And I'm tired of people as young as John Ossoff <laughs> saying he doesn't support the Green New Deal. What the know. heck? What what use is he?
1: Yeah, and you know Biden's going to put uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney in his cabinet. almost. No.
0: Guaranteed. Damn <laughs> it. I mean, he is... These guys are—you've perhaps yet to reach my level of cynicism, young grasshopper, about the Democrats.
2: (laughs) In the meantime, in in the meantime, Bernie Sanders is on a huge media tour, just begging to be ignored in the position (laughs) of Secretary of Labor. That's basically what Biden, what what uh, what? Sorry, I'm Biden, but Bernie at a Secretary of Labor would be—is he would have a fucking window job, and he's begging for
0: it. It's (laughs) yeah, it's gonna be, be rough. I'd be interested to see, I don't think he's going to get it, but what Bernie would do with something like that, it would be a little bit of a platform. I mean, he has a platform now, but I would like to see people like Bernie just run that kind of full-time activist, like kind of full-time campaign and just hold rallies all the time. And you yeah, The know, best I do- thing he
2: could do, the best thing he could do as Secretary of Labor is take the job and then leave after a week
0: right? Uh,
2: Is to to accept the job and then be like, I'm not getting to do all the things that I know need to be done. I can't be here. And that would put more pressure on the on the Biden administration.
0: That's about where Mike's phone died. Unfortunately, cutting our conversation a little short, but He'll be back on the show before too long. We're just about to get into a conversation of kind of where we go from here, how we stay involved, how we make a difference, which I think is to continue to be involved in efforts that you enjoy, that you feel are meaningful, organization, activism, uh, join a socialist group, uh, DSA, PSL, whatever work you find meaningful and important, whether it be working for a candidate or engaging in, in protest and direct action. So, but we'll have Mike on. Uh, before too long and uh, be speaking with other activists as well people who are going to help show the way forward from here in the meantime uh, look us up on iTunes look us up on Spotify give us a subscribe a rating, review that really helps us out Uh, Check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And um, we'll also be on some other platforms before long. So stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, catch you next time.